You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, it's always a pleasure to worship with you all this morning. Believe me when I say this, there is nowhere else I'd rather be than worshiping with you all uh, right here, right now, in this place, especially right before Christmas. Um, It it warms my heart and um, brings me so much joy that we get to do this together. Um, And as many of you know, we're kind of in the middle of this sermon series, A A Weary World Rejoices. So this is part four of five of our sermon series, A Weary World Rejoices. And then obviously we'll conclude this sermon series. There's a good opportunity to make a plug on Christmas Eve, which is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So coming up here, Christmas Eve. Tuesday, sorry, I got a shake from my head. Nope, you got your days wrong. Totally normal in the Powers household. So Tuesday, Christmas Eve, we'll wrap this particular sermon series up. Um, this morning, I'm preaching from a passage that may not initially like come to mind when you think of Christmas. Uh, for example, if you were to go to High V and go through uh, the card aisle and look for you know, a, a card you want to send to somebody that's you know, Christmassy or whatever, you're probably not going to see Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4 on the card. It's my guess. I haven't done it, but if you, you want to prove me wrong, give it a shot. But I'm guessing this passage isn't going to show up. And I'm not a betting man, but if I was, uh, I would bet that none of you were going to place Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 4 on, the top, on your top 10 list of Christmas passages, right? You're probably going to stick somewhere in the Gospels. Um, I'm guessing I will not see a family holiday card come to the Powers House with this passage. So I admit, when we talk about Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ, this passage just doesn't immediately come to mind. It lacks the details and the imagery that so often accompany the birth of Christ, when we talk about the birth of Jesus. So why preach from this passage during the Advent series? I mean, it's kind of the question I had to pose to myself. Why why am I doing this passage? Am I like, am I grasping at straws? Have I run out of Christmas ideas, so I gotta go somewhere else or whatever? Why? My aim this morning is to help fill out who baby Jesus is and what he's all about. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, helps us to understand the supremacy of the Christ child. If you, if you must have me extrapolate the incarnation from this passage, which I can, it would be this in verse 2. It says, in these last days, he, the he being there, being God, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. We can complement this passage with what we read from the book of Galatians, right? But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So, in the fullness of time, we see the inauguration of these last days, which has been ushered in by the birth of Christ. It's, it's almost like we've got these last days that happen which means we have like two periods of time, before these last days and right now, which is inaugurated by the birth of Christ. So in these last days, God sent his son into the world, and this is what we see in the text today, to be the greatest prophet 
the greatest priest, the greatest king. It is through the Son, Jesus, which God speaks. It is through the Son, Jesus, who makes purification of sins. And it is through the Son, Jesus, who governs and rules over all creation. In the previous weeks, we've seen from like the book of Isaiah and the Gospels of John and Luke, God's perfect plan to send his son to do what, right? To save the world. You know, Jesus didn't suddenly just show up and everyone's like, whoa, didn't see this coming. Well, some people who weren't reading their Bible, I guess, were like that. But God communicated beforehand that this is what's going to happen. So it just wasn't really unannounced, no. God's plan to save his elect people to himself has always been known. We read in the Gospel of John that the Son is the eternal Word of God. Isaiah shows us how God spoke ahead of time to the prophets to prepare them for the coming Christ. Like, just a heads up, this is going to take place. And so last week, just kind of do a quick review, we read Mary and, and how she responded to the news that she was bearing the Son of God in her womb. I'm just going to be a quick plug. If you haven't listened to those three sermons, I want to encourage you to listen to them all. Why? It gives you a more complete picture of God's plan and the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ in God's plan. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4, helps to kind of like fill in the picture. Like, I was trying to think of like an example of what this could look like, what this means. If you're a parent with children, this is going to totally make sense. You ever had those coloring pages for your kids that are like split up in like 25 different sections? Let's say it's the picture of a tree, a Christmas tree. And each section has a number in it. Let's say one through five. So one, two, three, four, five. And it's just, and the object is for the child to take number one, which corresponds to the green crayon, and take that green crayon and fill in all the sections with number one. And then take the brown crayon and realize that it's corresponding to number two. And you take, what do you do with the brown crayon? You fill in all the sections with number two. And what happens when you get done? You have a more complete understanding of the picture. Eventually, it all gets filled in. I've been trying to do the same with Mark's help as well um, in this sermon series. One sermon at a time, I've been trying to color in the sections to give you the most complete picture possible about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I've been trying to, to strengthen your faith and reinforce why we celebrate Christmas. So this next section I want to color in is about the supremacy of this baby that has been born. I want us to see the birth of Jesus and show how that reveals from Hebrews his supremacy over all creation. To turn the statement into a question, I am asking, what makes Jesus so great, right? What makes him so great? What is it about his birth that is so unique? And so Hebrews is going to show us. Um, The first four verses in the book of Hebrews helps us to see the greatness of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is greater. In these verses that we're covering today, we read that Jesus is the greatest prophet, greatest priest, greatest king. The birth of Jesus brought together so much of 
what the Old Testament's all about. I mean, I would submit to you there's a reason why so many Christians find it difficult to understand the book of Hebrews in general. Why? In order to understand the book of Hebrews, you've got to understand your Old Testament. Because what Hebrews is doing, in, including the first four verses of this book, is that it's exegeting the Old Testament. How do you understand the Old Testament? Well, I'll tell you, go read Hebrews. In the Old Testament, we read of prophets speaking as they were inspired by God, right? We read of priests who made sacrifices on behalf of God's people for purification of sins. We read of great kings, right? Who do you think of when you think of great kings? We go to David, right? A man after God's own heart. Yet Jesus... Born in conditions that we would all find disgusting, like if we're really being brutally honest about the conditions in which he was born in, we would be appalled and we would make sure no child would be born in that way. This Jesus is greater. So you can probably guess from what I've already said that the natural outline of verses 1 to 4 is prophet, priest, and king. I want to look at each role of Jesus and hope that each description will stoke your affection for the Christ child. But what's interesting is I was kind of laying out my outline. I realized before talking about prophet, priest, and king, and what does it mean for Jesus to be the greatest prophet, priest, and king, I realized this text is showing us something else about Jesus in addition to these roles. It's showing us about his nature, like who he is, his being, right? Like what makes you, you as a human being? Well, Hebrews actually talks about the nature of Jesus as well. So I'm gonna first start there. It's the nature of Christ. And then we'll talk about these roles that help inform that are informed by his nature. In two ways, the nature of Jesus is explained in our passage. Jesus' nature is reinforced, or is referenced when we read, one, he is the radiance of the glory of God, right? And then two, he is the exact imprint, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So there's two references I want to tackle here. We can admit right away there's some really high Christology going on here. The, the second person of the Trinity in the flesh is God in the flesh. And the author of Hebrews is describing what this means. Let's look at the first reference. Jesus having the radiance of the glory of God means he has like this act of radiance. A.W. Pink says this about the radiance of the glory of God with the Son. The glory associated with Moses and Elijah, so let's pause here to realize who Moses and Elijah are. Like Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, big deal. We got Elijah, this great prophet. Like they had unique encounters with God, they're a big deal. But it says the glory associated with these guys was so eclipsed by the infinitely greater glory connected with Christ that they faded from view. It's like, yeah, yeah, they were a big deal, but look at this guy. Look at Jesus. You can't look at Jesus without seeing God's glory actively on display. As we think about the glory of God in the, in the Old Testament, we realize that Jesus radiating God's glory is unique and new. Under the Old Covenant, so think 
Old Testament. The primary way in which our creator manifested his glory was like in a cloud, right? So you can go to Exodus 16, 1 Kings 8. We got this cloud and purpose of the cloud. God gave the cloud to help Israel through the wilderness, right? And it kind of radiated this light. We also see that in Nehemiah 9. It's referencing back to Exodus 16. And in fact, probably most of us think of bright light whenever we hear the word glory, and this is due to the fact that light is often associated with glory in the scriptures. So we got this cloud, there's light, there's glory going on. As we turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see Christ in the incarnation is the glory of God, John 1.14. He radiates, reflects, bursts forth the glory of God. So like, think of how the sun bursts forth, the sun in the sky that is, bursts forth its light and its rays. Like, you ever look up with the naked eye and be like, it's just, it's massive. It just goes forth. It's blinding. And so Jesus, we read, is a reflection, is refracting, radiates, bursts forth the glory of God. The second highly Christological statement behind this prophet, priest, and king is that he is the exact like, imprint of God. Um, the Greek language, um, the Greek behind the language here is how coins were made, right? So in order to make a coin, what do you need? You need to have like a stamp or an imprint and like that with the coin. And the idea is that everything you see on the stamp is on this coin. Exactly. No mistakes. I mean, again, all analogies break down, but you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Jesus in the flesh carries the identity and nature of God in every possible way. When you see Jesus, you see God. So the author, author, author of Hebrews, excuse me, is actually providing kind of like this ontological argument. That is, because of who Jesus is, he is able to be the greatest prophet, priest, and king. Because of his nature, he is able to be these things. Now, in light of what we know about the nature of Jesus, let's look at these roles. From the outset of the book of Hebrews, we can see that God has chosen to reveal himself by what he has spoken. Speaking is the rule of a prophet. And we read in verses one and two, long ago at many times and in many ways or in diverse ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So in God's perfect timing, the son was sent into the world to what? Speak to the world. God is communicating. There is, a, there is a contrast and connection between how God spoke through the prophets and how he speaks through Christ. The contrast is that the revelation in the former era was like diverse and partial. So we have all these books in the Old Testament that we call prophetic books, and behind these books we have individuals who, are, who wrote them, right? But that was diverse and partial. But the revelation in the Son is unitary and definitive. So Hebrews shows us a contrast, something in these last days, in the fullness of time, a shift has taken place. 
I think the connection is really simple to grasp as well. Here's the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God speaks. He speaks. Now, before I go any further, I have to say it's remarkable that God chooses to communicate with us. Like, this is absolutely stunning. God speaks. God has and is always speaking. There is a significant statement being made in these verses. A, a theologian, Thomas Schreiner, says this in his commentary in Hebrews. The one true God is a speaking God, one who communicates with his people and reveals his will and his ways to them. Words have always mattered to God. I mean, like, have you ever thought about that? Like, I was thinking about this um, last night when I was going over my sermon notes. Like, I got my dog, Winston. Like, my dog's awesome. Like, if he was here, he'd love you all, like you, and like, he's just a great. But you know what? God chose not to communicate with my dog, Winston. As much as I love my dog, Winston, and he takes up my side of the bed all the time, which I'm getting a little annoyed with right now, I love him, but, but God never chose to communicate with him. Instead, he's communicating with you, an image bearer of God. I think that's remarkable. In God's wisdom, he has chosen to speak with words and then through the word, Jesus. Whether we're talking about oral words, right? Or the words on a page, God speaks. To help make my point, we can go back to the creation account. Like, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And what do we read? Here's just the very first verses of Scripture. In the beginning, many of you know this, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in verse 3, what do we see? And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. God spoke the entire world into existence. Just read the entire creation account in Genesis. And it's all about God speaking. And man, his words are Powerful. From nothing, God spoke and created something. And it's not just in the creation account where we see this. We know that the entire Bible, right, are God's revealed words to us. Here's another confounding truth about the speaking creator God. We read in Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, that the one who spoke the world into existence is Jesus. Here's a passage from Hebrews. Through him, through whom also he created the world, right? Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And to pile on, here's a passage from Colossians. For by him, by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things 
All things were created through him and for him. So, before the second person of the Trinity was incarnated, he was at work. He was speaking the world into existence. The main point being made in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, is that God has spoken definitively and finally through the Son, who has always had the authority to speak. The Old Testament prophets had limited knowledge. They only knew what to say to the degree that God revealed to them what to say. But Jesus, the greatest prophet, is all-knowing. He created everything. And we should not think what Christ has spoken is contained in the past. Christ continues to speak. In verse 3, we also see how Christ upholds the universe through speaking. Like it's an ongoing thing. The Greek word for word, rhema here, continues to focus on the content of what God is speaking. And this Greek word for universe, if you're reading through your ESV, literally it's translated as all or everything. Which I think makes a more powerful point than universe. So, every molecule throughout the world and universe, every cell in your body, think about everything that's going on here. Everything continues to exist because Jesus causes and allows it to exist. I mean, can we just pause for a moment and like quiet our mind and grasp that single truth? Your very existence, right where you sit, is being upheld because Christ continues to speak you into existence. Listen to what it says in Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from its storehouses. Jesus upholds everything, everything. Now some people will confuse what is being said in Hebrews with um, this idea of pantheism. It's this idea that the universe is like a manifestation of God. Uh, No, God is still completely other than and distinct from his creation as the creator while at the same time active in ruling over his creation. Uh, this, this idea brought this point to mind that I heard from um, one of my professors in college, right? And he kind of used this analogy. He said it's like a watchmaker and a watch. Maybe you've heard this analogy before, right? Like, th- I wrote this into my sermon, and then my kids brought me something to fix. It was the exact same concept. I opened up this toy, and just like a watch, you have all these little dials and things, and like, you looked at it, and you just realized somebody made that. Like, It just didn't pop up out of nowhere, right? 
So like I was looking up what goes into like one of those mechanical watches, not, not like the new school stuff, the Apple watch, and all that, I'm talking like old school stuff, right? We got various wheels of different sizes that are connected. There's like this reduction gear for the hour hand. There's a balance wheel and a spring hair, an escape wheel, and so much more. All of it put together with precision and care. When you see inside a watch, you must admit there was a maker of the watch. Same with God. Now where the analogy does break down, which is distinct from Christianity, is that God, the maker, continues to ensure his creation is sustained. God hasn't sat back, put his feet up, and just to let it all go. The world continues to operate because God sustains all things by his, what do we read in Hebrews? His powerful word. So, wrapping up this prophet role, right? Words have always mattered to God. The act of speaking has and will always be significant to God. And Jesus, the word of God, is the greatest prophet who has ever spoken. So you can keep that in mind as you celebrate the birth of Christ. In addition to being the greatest prophet, Jesus is also the great high priest. Um, this theme is also developed throughout Hebrews. You can go to chapters 7 to 10 for that. But we get a glimpse of it here in verse 3. It says, After making purification for sins. What is the author of Hebrews trying to say with this statement? Because of his divine nature, Jesus is the one who is able to fulfill and finally atone and forgive sins. There's only one who is able to make purification for your sins. Here's an example of how Christ has purified your life, Christian. I heard this from David Powelson before he passed away. Your life was like this rag filled with dirt and oil. My mind goes to like a mechanic's garage. You pull a rag out and it is just nasty. Like there's just no way of getting this thing clean. You could try to maybe try to hide the dirt, but it remains. You try to clean it yourself and you can't. And your life is like that. Your sin is why that rag is absolutely dirty. Try to wash it yourself, but the stains persist. The rag is simply impure. But what if someone else could purify the rag for you? In the Old Testament, purification of sin happened through like animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is a bit foreign to us, and I'm just making a big guess here, but it's probably illegal <laughs> these days. I mean, many of you are aware that I like butcher our chickens and ducks over at the farm, but I'm not like creating an altar here and making sacrifices to God. Like they're going in the freezer. <laughs> so even though it's foreign to us, it was not unusual or illegal for many cultures hundreds of years ago throughout the world to perform animal sacrifices. In Judaism, Animal sacrifices and the purification of the temple were like highly symbolic. They did these things because they spoke something. Uh, they tried to communicate what they believed about God and what they believed about themselves. So for Judaism, the big idea that needed to be resolved is how can a sinful and evil people be made right with a holy God? 
The answer in the Old Testament is through a sacrifice. An animal sacrifice was how a person or group of people could be forgiven and made pure. What this passage in Hebrews and the entire New Testament is trying to get at is that now there is only one way to be made pure and it's through faith in Jesus. It is Jesus who washes the dirt, filth, and impurity that makes the ra- and makes the rag completely clean and pure. It's through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that people are made pure. So you just think about your life. Like, all the sin that I've done that separated me from a holy and righteous God has been bridged because of Christ and I've been made pure because of Christ. Past, present, future sin. Like the S word, right? Not to go off on a tangent, but nobody wants to talk about sin anymore. And here we see the only way to understand how you've been made pure is to understand your sin. So when Jesus, Son of God, makes purification for sins, a, a massive reorg has taken place. So I was thinking about like, you know how businesses have an organizational chart that shows you who's in charge of who or whatever? Like president, vice president, managers, whatever, all the way down. Like it's like Jesus came in, he's like, new org chart, new org chart for how to understand this. An animal is no longer necessary for purification of sin because Jesus is the sacrifice. Remember what I said about the nature of Jesus? Well, his nature impacts his ability to save. Because of who Jesus is, he is able to save. Jesus doesn't need to prove himself through his actions. He is able to save because of his divine nature. He is God. The audacious statement of the gospel is that Jesus is now able to make purification for sin, not by being the great, just being the great high priest, but he is also the sacrifice, and that is simply amazing. That's two, great prophet, great high priest. Now we got this third category that we read in Hebrews, king. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus is also the greatest king. In verse two, it says Jesus is the heir of all things, right? In the Old Testament, inheritance language was often connected to the land. Um, God promised Israel they would inherit like the land of Canaan. Here we read Jesus is the heir of all things, not just land, everything. Jesus is the heir of all things, thus fulfilling the promise that the Davidic throne will never lack a king. Verses three and four provide additional like, royalty language, right? Kind of telling us about his kingship. So that after making purification of sins, which we just talked about, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we should pause for a moment and consider what the king has done for his people. 
Out of love, he came off his throne to suffer and die so his people did not have to die. It's truly remarkable when you, when you think of it. As I've pondered the actions of this king with other earthly kings throughout history, just generally speaking, I've noticed like a marked difference. So if we're saying if, with scripture that Jesus is king, well, we also have experience in this, in this world with other kings, prime ministers, presidents, all kinds of rulers. You know what they're marked by? Self-preservation. They will do all they can, including disown their own subjects or constituents to remain in power and hold on to authority. Even when there's been a good and just ruler, he or she does not compare to King Jesus. Listen to what Jesus has done for his people. It's the exact opposite of self-preservation and it's self-sacrifice. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Show me a king or president or prime minister, whoever that has lived out that passage. Perhaps there's no better picture of this than what we read in the Chronicles of Narnia and in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I know many of you have read or seen the movie, read the book or seen the movie, but in case you haven't, um, there's a remarkable scene of Aslan, a lion, and the king of Narnia dying for a sinner. Like, kiddos out there, like, great book, parents read it to your kids. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And here's what we see. We got this other character, aside from Aslan, we got this guy named Edmund. And He's a main character of the book, and he betrays Aslan and his siblings by uniting with the White Witch of Narnia. Basically, the, the witch is like, hey, you want some treats? And Esmond's like, yeah, I'm in. It's like, serious? That's all it took. Okay. The witch knows what Edmund's betrayal will mean for him, and ultimately, Ed- Edmund finds himself in the witch's prison, right? There's a scene in the book where the White Witch confronts Aslan, right? Aslan wants Edmund back, he wants Edmund back and with his siblings. But in exchange for Edmund's life, the white witch wants Aslan's death. The death of Aslan would atone for the sin of Edmund. A king laid down his life to save another. King Jesus laid down his life so that you could take up yours and live. And to show the world that he truly had power and authority over everything, King Jesus conquered death by rising from the dead. And as Hebrews 1.3 suggests, King Jesus now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. This idea that Jesus sat down is like him saying, it is done. It is done. The king's atoning work is complete. For you, Christian, that should be of great comfort. 
He's saved you from your sin, given you life, freedom, eternal life, and the king has now sat back down and said it's done. To continue to make the point, the author of Hebrews says King Jesus is also superior to the angels, which this argument gets built out in the rest of chapter one. There's nothing created or uncreated that lies outside the jurisdiction of King Jesus. Spurgeon says the same, but also he ties in the gospel to this point. Here's what he says. Christ is Lord over all the angels. Not a seraph spreads his wings except at his bidding. As for all things here below, God has given the Son power over all flesh. All must willingly or else unwillingly submit to his sway. For his Father has appointed him. This is another wondrous encouragement to anyone who is seeking salvation. Christ has everything in his hand that he may save us. If we come and entrust ourselves into his hands, he will never have to look. We will never have to look about to find the balm for our wounds. King Jesus, the Lord over all, Remember I said that word in the Greek that's translated universe in the ESV actually is literally all or everything. So the Lord over everything is sovereign over everything. He has spoken into existence. Jesus continues to uphold all things. King Jesus stooped down to earth and was born a baby. He was always on mission to redeem his elect people to himself through his atoning sacrifice. Now King Jesus is abiding in his elect people by faith. So think about that, Christian. Now King Jesus abides in you, and now you radiate the glory of God to the world because of Christ in you. And King Jesus reigns on high, waiting so that just at the right time, he will come back to judge the living and the dead. He is coming back to right all the wrongs. He is coming back to execute justice on the oppressed, or on oppression and injustice, excuse me. He is coming back to wipe away every tear. He is coming back so that the hope of the elect will be fully realized. So this Advent, right? This Advent, as we celebrate the birth of Christ as we, as we look back in a sense, right? And we read the scriptures and realize it's still alive. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we can also look forward to his second advent, his second coming. And we can look forward with expectation and hope in what Jesus will do. Let's pray.